This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome back to Ask the MPs from AOPA. Ask the A&Ps is where we try to address any and all maintenance questions that come our way. If you have a question, reach us at podcasts at aopa.org. Once again, that's podcasts at aopa.org. And if you like the show, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, you, you know, um, I, I, I wanted to mention GA seems to be roaring back after the uh, COVID-19 lockdowns. Um, I just saw some stuff that indicated that general aviation IFR flight plan filings are, I think it was 18% ahead of where they were a year ago. And for piston GA, it was almost 30% higher than they were a year ago, which is pretty amazing. I know pre-buys are going crazy. I know with the savvy uh, stuff, they're going crazy. But also, I'm getting so many calls to do remote pre-buys on the, you know, specific airplanes that I work on, the 210s in particular. And it's just really up. Of course, you know, with every buyer, there's a seller. But still, the activity seems pretty amazing. Definitely unexpected. Yeah, I have... Oh, go ahead, Clint. Sorry, I personally have two friends that have started flight training, and that's after years of, of not knowing anybody. These two people came and, and picked it up and are, are hot and heavy. So that's a really good sign. Yeah, I have a sense that, uh, that the COVID thing caused quite a few people to want to sell their airplanes, and correspondingly, quite a few people wound up buying them. And so there's just been a lot of turnover in airplanes, and, and that's what's... Uh, uh, spiked up the, the, the volume of pre-buys. It's just amazing what, what we've been seeing. But the IFR flight plans thing was also very encouraging. Yeah. Of course, with a lot of new owners comes a whole lot of new flight training and new flying. People are excited. You know, there's going to be a lot more flying going on. It's all, it's all good. We've certainly had a lot of trouble flying here on the West Coast with the smoke. I, I just came back from a trip up the coast earlier, and uh, we had to time our departures and arrivals for when the smoke was hanging down and get out before it went completely IFR. Maybe that's why there's been so much more IFR traffic, is all the smoke on the left coast. Maybe. We've been getting a lot of questions <laughs> about uh, is flying through smoke hard, harmful to the engines and stuff. As far as I can tell, it really isn't. It probably, probably is means you should change your induction air filter more often. 
But I think it's more harmful to the pilots than it is for the yeah. equipment. <laughs> Okay, let's get started. Our first guest is Steve, who has a question about alternator troubleshooting. Go ahead, Steve. Well, my aircraft is a 1968 Beechcraft, and it has some aging aircraft issues, sometimes wire corrosion, component failure, etc. And I've had my alternator light come on three times in flight, and it bothers me that it's a difficult system to troubleshoot because the components are hard to reach, the regulator is under my feet, the alternator is on an engine that has to operate to test, and it's challenging. So it's a gear-driven alternator. I can't even take it to my local shop for a belt test without fiddling with it. So I was hoping somebody might provide a stepwise method of analyzing a system that's distributed and has to be with an operating engine to actually figure out what's broken. Well, <laughs> Steve, it just so happens that in uh, one of my aircraft ownership books, I wrote a chapter about alternators. And part of that chapter is a troubleshooting procedure. So I thought maybe I would go through that with you and see if it helps. None of the troubleshooting involves running the engine or doing anything that would muss your hair. But what's important is to kind of do it step-by-step step in a logical sequence. So uh, the very first thing uh, to check when you have an alternator problem is, which seems pretty obvious, is to check if the alternator rotor is turning. Now, if it's a belt-driven alternator, then that's pretty trivial. You just take a look and see whether when you turn the prop, it, the, the, the pulley is turning. But if it's a gear-driven alternator like the one in your Bonanza, it's a little less obvious. So what you need to do is take a flashlight and look through the, the you know, on the non-drive end of the alternator where the cooling slots are and uh, rotate the prop. And you should be able to see the alternator cooling fan rotating through those uh, cooling slots. If you can't, then the alternator is probably not rotating and you've probably sheared the drive coupling and the alternator will have to come off because obviously an alternator is not going to be able to produce any power if it's not turning. Uh, assuming that the alternator is rotating, then the next step would be to turn on the battery master switch and the alternator field switch with the engine not running, please, and use, an alternate, uh, use a, a regular uh, voltmeter to check for field voltage at the alternator's field terminal, uh, which on a Bonanza is very easy to get to because it's right up in the right front side of the engine. You can actually reach it right through the, uh, the nose bowl. And when you put the meter on the, uh, on the field terminal, you should see something around battery voltage, which would either be 12 or 24 volts, depending on whether you have a 12 or 24 volt system. Um, if you don't see something like battery voltage at the field, then the problem is clearly not a problem with the alternator because the alternator can't produce power unless it has, has field voltage. So you're, you're going to have to look further back in the system. But if the alternator is, is rotating and is giving getting field voltage, then it should be producing 
power unless something's wrong with it. The next thing you should check while you're there is to put the uh, voltmeter on the alternator's output terminal, the, the big heavy B plus terminal. And you should also see battery voltage there because it should be feeding back from the main bus through the big alternator circuit breaker back to the alternator output terminal. If you don't see battery voltage there, then the big breaker presumably has popped or, or something in that big heavy B plus wiring has disconnected. So you have to correct that. Then the next step, if you still haven't located the problem, is to uh, disconnect the field wire from the alternator field terminal. Again, this is all right up at the alternator where it's easy to get to. And check the resistance with an ohmmeter, uh, resistance of the field. If it's a 12-volt alternator, the field resistance should be somewhere around 3 to 6 ohms. If it's a 24-volt alternator, it should be somewhere around 10 to 18 ohms. And while you're making this resistance measurement, rotate the prop with the ohmmeter still connected and see whether the resistance is jumping all over the place or whether it's pretty stable. It should be stable, and if it's jumping all over the place, it means that the, the brushes or slipperings in the alternator are having a problem. So you can, just with a voltmeter, uh, with a multimeter up at the alternator without the engine running, do a tremendous amount of troubleshooting. If you don't see battery voltage at the field terminal, then you're going to have to move backwards towards the, uh, towards the regulator and so on and find out where the field voltage is being lost. And it could be getting lost at the regulator itself. It could be getting lost at the, at the alternator uh, field switch or the alternator field breaker. You just have to trace backward to see how far the, the field voltage has gotten before it stops, it, it, before it stops. But you can do probably 80% of the testing right up at the alternator itself with nothing more than, a, than, than an ordinary multimeter. And the engine doesn't need to be running. So hopefully that, uh, that, that, that'll give you some help in how, to, in, in how to run down these problems. And pretty much everything I've described, you, know, you ought to be able to accomplish in a half an hour. And Mike, if he's getting a light, does that mean that the issue is inside the alternator or is it the charging system in general? What does the light specifically say? You know, I don't know the answer to that because I don't have a, a Bonanza schematic. Most airplanes have a light that will indicate that the that the bus voltage is, has dropped to battery voltage. Sometimes it's marked a low volt light. Sometimes it's marked a high volt light. Well, that would be uh, assessment. Uh, yeah, some. some <laughs> Mine has a relay that holds it in uh, when the batter, when the uh, alternator produces, and when it stops producing, the alternator drops out and the light comes on. So yeah, there's aux terminal on the back of the alternator that that is wired into the lamp through the re external regulator. But I, so, so I'm assuming it's just indicating an alternator issue. Like if you had a fuse that was open in the charging system, that would not turn the light on. Right. Is this is this alternate? Is this a light that you're talking about, Steve? Um, is is that connected to the alternator aux terminal? Uh, not certain. In the Bonanza, it is. Uh, this is one of the early ones, so serial number seventy-three. So it was <laughs> quite early. 
it it switches. It has an alternator switch labeled alternator. I also have an analog charging meter on the lower panel, which is indicating mm -hmm. current. So I think right. they've separated the two dif two cons two different data points. So let me I serial number seventy three. And you have an alternator at the right front of the engine. So you have a 550 installed? No, 520. This, this 520. Oh, okay. So you have permold. And did it come originally with a, what year? I missed what year model it was. Uh, 68. First year, the 36 model. Okay. So it had an alternator to start with. Uh, it was always a gear driven on this engine. Right. But it wasn't, didn't start with the generator. That's where I was Correct. going. Correct. Okay. Just, I'm not the, you know. I don't have all the bonanzas memorized, so I just wanted to be sure we we don't, we don't the have interesting a thing. The interesting thing about how this one turned out was uh, I think you could have done all the things Mike suggested and still been baffled only because it operated. If you measured the volt, the ohmmeter setting or the ohmmeter uh, amount, it measured okay. And I got talking about at, on the field. On the bench, you take it out, take it out of the aircraft, put it on the bench, and the and the 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 ohmmeter readings were correct. And I got the call from the rebuild shop, um, and I said, "Well, when I spun it, I I jerry rigged a V belt on it, and we spun it locally, and I and I said, and it didn't produce, and I took it to a, a um, automotive rebuilder." for alternators, because it is a 12 volt, and he spun it and he said the same thing. So when I sent it to the rebuild shop, I already knew it didn't work. The rebuild shop calls me and says, the ohm meter uh, says the field, all the windings are good. And I said, well, you need to spin it. And he did, and it failed on the spin, but it didn't okay. fail otherwise. So I ended up with a new statter. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it was one of those toughies. It's a lot of work getting that out. Yeah. <laughs> I have spun well, mine on the plane. That's exciting. Disconnected you know, from the prop and spun it. You know, now here's the thing. That's why doctors make more money than airplane mechanics. And, and as soon as we can figure out how to probe that alternator while the engine is still running, like doctors do, you know, open heart surgery, do it while the engine's still running. When we can do it while that prop is turning, we're going to get paid like doctors. That's, that's <laughs> what I'm looking forward to. That's the only difference. In, in addition to all the advice that Mike gave you, which is very straightforward, I just recently went through this checking out my charging system with an ohmmeter, and it was a pretty involved. And I used um, a great troubleshooting guide that's published by Plane Power, which I think is now Hartzell oh, yeah. Technologies. It's a flow chart that says, check you know check the voltage here, and if you get voltage, then go to here. And, and it puts you through the whole charging system, and it has a really nice, simple diagram of how all these things are wired together, and you can see the fail points. Uh, I have an aircraft that's almost as yours, as old as yours, Steve. And every single place where you insert a fuse or two wires are connected or the ammeter is connected is a place where there's corrosion and voltage drops. And it was causing yes. uh, huge headaches in my charging system. So yes. you, you couldn't you couldn't be talking about the Cardinal, could you? Yes. Oh, no. Yeah, the aging wire and corrosion <laughs> at the terminals and crimps that are failing. All of this is on the plate. Yeah. That's a oh, reason yeah. to buy a Cirrus right there, right, Paul? Stop, stop it now. Stop it. Yeah, so here's when, when we troubleshoot an alternator, before we do anything, we just walk out to the engine, put a voltmeter on the field terminal. If there's battery volts there, there's a 
95% probability it's the alternator. If there's no volts there, it's going to be related to the regulator. But as Colleen said, the high resistance, especially in old airplane and like Cessnas, I have to poke at at Cessnas because I work on those all the time. And they have all these circuit breakers that are not pullable. So they've been sitting there oxidizing and corroding all these years. And, you know, you'd think something that's 40, 45 years old would still be working perfect. But uh, just being able to trip a circuit breaker and push it back in will sometimes solve all kinds of problems. But in your case, you you had to do something special, didn't you? (laughs) Yeah. Had to come up with a problem that's not normal. And I've done that. I put a power source on each of my circuit breakers just to exercise them and to check them to see if they would trip at the correct voltage. And it's <laughs> it's a pain in the butt. I eventually just replaced them all, just recently, wow. actually. By power source, you mean you shorted them out with a screwdriver? No, 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 no. I had a real bench power source. <sighs> okay. I don't do the screwdriver thing. No. Well, Steve, that was a great question, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to find the information valuable. Thanks for coming on the show and helping us out. Appreciate your invitation. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, the 1978 uh, Warrior Three for a few years, and it got expensive on a few things. And one of the problems I had to deal with more than once, I think it was every annual, actually, there was some issue with corrosion, usually involving uh, somewhere in the tail. So I replaced some control cables. It was never anything major, but you know, a control cable here, a control cable there, it adds up. Uh, to real money, and I was uh, at the time there wasn't anything available really to use as a preventative. But I wonder if there is now, or what what can you do, uh, particularly in the hard to reach areas uh, that are hard to inspect? What can you do to to stop that? Corrosion X and ASF fifty. Yeah, I I was going to say the same thing, Paul. Um, the the you you need to well i mean f- first of all it would be really nice if the airplane was put in a hangar or or moved or moved to denver or tucson but assuming that those aren't options uh the best thing you can do is is to periodically every year or two treat the aircraft with a corrosion preventative compound and, and there are there are two different classes of uh cpcs available there's one class that one of the most common ones is uh, is LPS three or uh, Bosch T nine that that basically serve as sealants. They they leave a waxy film on the on the surfaces that serves sort of in in lieu of uh, of paint and uh, and and tries to, uh, to to seal the surfaces and keep moisture out. The second class of CPCs are called uh, thin film dielectric dielectrics, TFDs, and uh, Corrosion X and uh, ACF50 are the two brand names that are most common in, in that area. The TFD preventatives are, are sort of magic man-made molecules that have an affinity for metal on one side of the molecule and a repulsiveness of water on the other side. And they are fogged in under high pressure uh, with with long, thin application wands. It, it's best to take the aircraft. You can buy this stuff in, in aerosol cans, but it's really best to take the aircraft to an application center that has the right equipment to fog the stuff in. And it and it's fogged in 
in a very, very fine mist that almost looks like smoke and it, it gets everywhere. So it's, it's, it's great because you don't, it, even the hard to reach places wind up getting treated with the stuff. And it creates just a, a one molecule thick magic layer on, on everything that, that sticks to the metal and, and uh, repels water. It has several advantages over the sealant kind. It, first of all, it, it, it gets to places that the sealant won't get to, but it also, um, it will neutralize any corrosion cells that are that, that are currently active rather than just sealing them in and letting, letting them continue to corrode. So it's really good stuff. Um, there's a tendency to apply it too heavily unless you're really experienced. A little dab will do you with this stuff. And if you apply it too heavily, the airplane winds up weeping for, for months afterwards. So uh, that's kind of a rookie mistake. But uh, it's best to take it to an application center, have somebody who's experienced at doing it uh, do it. And actually, there are some some folks, I think, that do this on a mobile basis where they'll, they'll kind of come around to your airport and, 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 and do it. Uh, but ACF50 or Corrosion X are the two brands of, uh, of, of TFD, uh, corrosion preventative compounds. And every couple of years is probably about the right application interval, unless it's a really severe case if you're in South Florida, Puerto Rico, or Houston or something, maybe once a year. Something I would suggest, too, on, the, on your control cables, I don't know if you have uh, Cherokee, so I'm trying to remember, stainless... Anyway, if they're stainless, they yeah, if they're stainless, they wear from the inside out, and every time they bend around a pulley, those strands wear against each other. And even though ASF50 and Crojanex are not designed as lubricants, they are kind of oily. So if you have a spray can and you just want to, this is not a mechanic required function. You can get back in the tail and you can get a little drizzle on those cables, especially where they go around pulleys, and that will help. Uh, create a little lubricant between those strands. It won't wear quite as quickly, at, at least for a start. But if you've got corrosion on your cables on a Cherokee, you really want to take a look at your wing attach points as well, especially the fore and the aft wing attach points, steel plates uh, riveted to aluminum uh, bulkheads. Got a service bulletin for that. Why did uh, they do that, Paul? I don't know. That, that you seems know. like it just screams dissimilar metal corrosion. I'm, I'm sure it sounded like a good idea at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and there's a service bulletin for that, especially in the rear. But, yeah, you definitely, uh, a lot of water and moisture gets in there because the wing roots don't seal well. The, the rubber seal around the wing root is probably torn and flopping on the bottom. Well, at least they were on my airplane back in the day. But anyway, yeah, keep that. Um sealed up as well and a little asf 50 or corrosion x will do a great job ECF 50 oh sorry see i got to start taking notes when mike talks he all these molecule things and stuff and I, i'm gonna write all these things down so i can throw around some words like that i was involved with the sale of a 172 and we were showing the airplane to the buyer and we were pushing down on the tail to spin it around and a whole bunch of water pull that poured out of the tail and the buyer said, oh, I guess you don't have the weep holes. Um, they're, they're plugged. And I didn't even realize, I don't know if pipers have the same thing, but in a Cessna, there's little holes drilled in the tail so that any water that gets in can get out. We had a, a fish tank back there. 
Yeah, pretty, much, <laughs> so. pretty much all aircraft have, have drain holes like that. And, and that's a very common source of corrosion is that yeah. drain holes get plugged with debris of some sort. And then water will pool up inside. Yeah, and all the, the oil and gunk that's in the belly of the airplane is not a corrosion inhibitor. It's it's oh, old darn. engine oil. It's, you know, it's old engine oils full of acids. Don't keep that stuff in there. Get it out. Now, Mike, when you fog an airplane like that, does that affect micro switches or electronics in any way? If you have something in the tail like a servo or an AHERS with electrical connections? Um, it, it it actually doesn't affect anything electrically, and you you can you could dunk radios in this stuff because it is. In fact, I, I think one of the one of the advertising things that corrosion exit at one point was was show some piece of electric like TV set I think dunked in corrosion X running, but um, the place you don't want to get it is is anything that um, the oil would screw up like uh, like um, autopilot uh, servo clutches and things. And so typically, um, if the airplane has stuff like that, we'll, we'll put a plastic bag over it before before fogging to, to, to keep uh, to keep the oil out. That it, it, Paul is right. This stuff is an extremely effective penetrating oil. It's not really designed, yeah. <laughs> but it does a heck of a job. So it, it does really good loosening up over time. Those push pull for your air vents and stuff like that just drizzle a little bit on those wire round, wire wound uh, push pull cables that are you know kind of like glorified lawnmower throttles. Just drizzle some on those, and eventually they'll start freeing up real nicely. Well, that's yeah. a pretty expensive lubricant, though. It is. Yeah. I, yeah. Like, I always I always saturate my exhaust nuts with that stuff the night before I'm going to remove one. So. Yeah. So what's the cost benefit of fogging an airplane? That doesn't sound like it's necessarily uh, something anybody can do. Well, fogging, we charge. Expensive. Yeah. We, most places, I think ours, uh, our flat rate in my shop is uh, $300 and it doesn't take very long. Always better to do during an annual while you already have a bunch of covers off, but the, uh, the product is not all that expensive. Buying the equipment, to do the fogging, that that's kind of pricey. So you charge a little extra to pay for that. But yeah, and if you live in Arizona, I think corrosion's been outlawed. But you know, you do it once every few years. But if you live in Pensacola, uh, those guys fog once or twice a year, and yeah. they still get behind the eight ball. It's yeah. it, it's a problem. All right, see you, Thank Jim. You. See you, Jim. Take care. Okay, so our next question is from Tamer. He's got some issues with uh, cylinders on his Cessna 120, which is an awesome airplane, by the way. Tamer, glad to have you on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, so I've got a Lycoming 0290D in my Cessna 120, and um, the motor's pretty good. It's got about 1,100 hours on it, about uh, three or 400 on the top end, and uh, 250 hours in the last two years I've flown it. Um, wow. Wow. So, Good flying. Good job. Yeah. It's my first plane, so I've been flying a ton. Um, so all the compressions are pretty good. They're all mid to high 60s. Not amazing, but good enough. But the number one cylinder has been oil fouling the bottom plug. And so normally the bottom plugs take 75 to 100 hours till they need a cleaning. This one is about 20 to 30 hours, and it's really bad. So I know 
pulling cylinders is a bad idea. And I want to try to avoid that if I can. So I don't know if there's anything else I can do to use a fine wire plug or anything else I can look at that could possibly be it besides just, you know, the uh, pulling the cylinder and having it overhauled. Um, I mean, the oil analysis is super clean over the last year and it burns really consistent oil. I mean, it burns a lot. It's probably every two to three hours a quart, but it's very consistent. So that's my question. Anything so else I can do? Okay, so I'll start with a couple of questions for you while everybody else is thinking of, of their much better answers than mine. Do you know what type spark plugs you have in the engine now? Yeah, they're the Tempest URM37BY. So it's the okay. massive electrode ones. But you do have the BY, so they're the, they have the two long probes that stick out. So you've already got that. Okay. How 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 bad is this problem? How how I mean, are, is this oil fouling so bad that you can't clean it up during the pre-flight run-up? Um, I've actually never. I always try to lead it off in the run-up and try to do that, but I I'm not really sure if it does. I've never done that and then shut down and pulled the plug to see what it looks like. Um, well, if it's running, it's cleared out. Right. Never mind what it looks like. What what's it? How's the engine running? Yeah, I mean, the engine runs great. I, I can't really tell in the air that it, it needs a, a cleaning. Uh, it seems fine. So yeah. what, is really what, are the, what are the symptoms that are causing you concern? It's really just when I pull it out and, you know, there's big chunks of burnt oil all over the plug and they kind of fall out from the plug hole and it's <laughs> oh, a little wow. wet. I mean, obviously it's not like, it's not horrible. It doesn't feel like an airworthiness issue, but with the other ones being so clean, it feels like, I don't know if there's anything else I can do or if I need to just keep flying it. Have you tested that plug for resistance? Is it? There, it's actually a pretty close to new plug, so I'm pretty sure the plug is firing. It's got. I put mm -hmm. in new plugs and uh, new wires about a hundred or 150 hours ago. So. And you don't um, have an engine monitor. I do not have an engine monitor. No. Have you borescoped the cylinder? I have not. No, that was on my list of things to do. Well, you know, my my reaction is first of all, if it if it's not causing you problems operationally, then I would just tolerate it. And if you were if if you have morbid curiosity about the situation, I would stick a borescope in the cylinder. Actually, it's a, not a bad idea anytime you have a a plug out to stick a borescope in the cylinder. And if you don't have a borescope, you can you can buy one for about 250 bucks on Amazon. What's he looking for? Well, if the plug's being oil fouled, I, I would I would look at the condition of the barrel and see if there's a lot of vor vertical scoring or something that would indicate abnormal bar barrel wear. Good compressions, which would uh, imply that the, the rings are seating properly. Yeah, mm. but he still good, could good, have glazed over cylinder walls. Good yeah. compressions only tell you what the cylinder looks like at top dead center, and yeah. it, it could could be... There could be all sorts of corrosion pitting at mid-stroke that would allow a bunch of oil to be coming by. But again, we you know we sort of hate to pull cylinders without really really compelling reasons. So if this isn't causing you operational issues, I would probably tolerate it. I might maybe clean the plug a little more often than 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 usual and just enjoy the airplane. So yeah. I had, uh, I'm sorry, Paul, to interrupt. I had a broken oil control ring in the Cardinal in one of the cylinders, and uh, it let oil into the cylinder and was oil fouling a lot, and it led to, like, pre-ignition in the cylinder. I was getting runaway 
CHDs in flight. So, I mean, if you're getting oil in there, you're you're making it sound like it's it's fine to operate, but it might eventually lead to a problem. Okay. Cylinder, would you disagree, guys? Or well, I would say if you can clear it during your normal run-up, you know, eighteen hundred RPM, and and it clears up, and you get a good mag check, then I wouldn't be worried about the spark plug. It would be my point that you can clear the spark plug; it's running fine. But definitely, yeah, put a bore scope down in the cylinder. Do you have a bore scope? I don't, but I can oh. get one. Oh yeah, yeah. You'll you'll love it. You can do so many other things. You know, you, spy on people with it. Oh yeah, you can check the fillings in your teeth, and you know, when you get through with all that stuff, then you go, you start putting it in every little spot you can see in the airplane, and, and yeah, you'll love it. The, you know, the, the fine wire plug is a little bit more fouling resistant, but the BY plugs that you're using, which is the projected uh, core style massive plug, is is pretty darn resistant. And I don't think that, that changing that for a fine wire plug would make a whole lot of difference. Um, again, if you were having serious operational problems, I think we would be more concerned but if this is just that I don't like what the plug looks like when I pull it out, I, I don't think that would justify pulling the cylinder. It, I think things would have to get worse before it would be worth doing that. Okay, thanks. Yeah, I was trying to avoid that just because, you know, with the 0290, it's kind of hard to come across these kind of cylinders and overhauls and stuff like that. So I'd rather avoid it if I can. Yeah, not a very common engine. Yeah, hmm. definitely. Well, you definitely just need to fly them much more, Tomer. Yeah, it, and you're doing a great job of that so far, so keep that up. Yeah. All right, thanks. <laughs> can Can you put an 0320 in a, in a Cessna 120, Paul? Wow, <laughs> that's a lot of engine for a 120. <laughs> uh, well. You could you could make a banner towing airplane out of it with that. Could race it, yeah. <laughs> could race it. Colleen, she wants to race everything. Yeah, <laughs> go faster. <laughs> Tamara, thanks. Uh, great question. Uh, we appreciate it. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people can uh, can relate to that for sure. So great to appreciate you calling in. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Enjoy. Thanks. All right. So our next uh, caller is John, and he has a question about his Mooney. Hey, John, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Uh, we're breathing every time we try. That's great. <laughs> Good to hear that. So my question really isn't specifically about the Mooney, more so about the annual inspection. It just happens to be the recent experiences with the Mooney. And it's the, the question is, how much as an owner can I push back on the squawk list that the inspection mechanic says is necessary to pass the annual? And what oh, is then. the difference between the recommended versus the, I'm not about to sign off on this until you do this? I, I tell you what, I'll start because I know that Mike's going to finish. <laughs> <laughs> With a bang. <laughs> With a bang, yeah. So just something that you have to know that mechanics and IAs can't ground your airplane. Uh, they can say we have to sign it off with the discrepancies, but they can't ground the airplane. That's The airworthiness is always your authority, not theirs. So you can decline everything if you want. But if they label it as airworthy, an airworthiness issue, not airworthy, but an airworthiness issue, then they should be able to back it up with something that explains to you in a way that you can understand why it's an airworthiness issue. If it's recommended, 
you can just summarily say no to all of those. Shouldn't make any difference. Uh, and not saying that you should always decline service bulletins and that sort of thing, but you can. Those are never required unless they're included as reference in an airworthiness directive. I don't think the Moonies have airworthiness limitations, but if you had an airplane, a Cirrus or a Columbia, for instance, that does a Part 23 airplane, airworthiness limitations have the same weight as an AD. So you have to take care of those. But the discrepancies, you can always challenge and say, please explain to me why this is an airworthiness item. If the AD is due tomorrow, it is not an airworthiness issue today. They can sign it off as airworthy. Now you fly it for a day and now the AD is due. Nevertheless, that's how airworthiness works. So you can push back in, in those aspects. And remember, 91.403 says that you are the guy in charge of the airworthiness. The mechanic's job is mostly just to determine airworthiness. He's not tasked by the FAA to create an airworthy airplane unless you tell him to do that. That's still your job. Does that make sense? It does. Thank you. Now, now it's Mike's turn. <laughs> Fasten your seatbelt. Here we go. Paul, you did that very well. I, I, I would I certainly encourage owners always to push back on anything that doesn't feel right to them. Don't be obnoxious about it. Don't get your heart set on winning every single one of these fights. But you really should not approve any maintenance unless you are convinced that there's a good reason to do it. Now, as Paul said, the, the IA's job during an annual is to make an airworthiness determination. And if we go back to the definition of airworthiness, airworthiness has two components to it. For something to be airworthy, it, it has to comply with its type design and it has to be in condition for safe operation. Now, compliance with type design is, um, at least theoretically, an objective standard. If you and your IA discuss a discrepancy that involves compliance with type design, for example, the brake discs are too worn, that should be an objective standard. You get out your micrometer and you measure them, and then you look in the book, and the book says the minimum acceptable thickness of the brake disc is, is so many hundreds of thousands. And either your brake discs are below that or they're not below that. And so the, the question of airworthiness should be open and shut where, when it comes to a, something having to do with compliance with type design. The other part of airworthiness, which is condition for safe operation, is an entirely subjective standard. It's somebody's opinion. In this case, it's the IA's opinion. If you've got three IAs look at the same thing, they might all have different opinions. And that's okay because condition for safe operation is a subjective standard. And if, if your opinion of what's safe and the IA's opinion is what's safe are different, that's a perfectly reasonable subject to have a conversation about. Because there isn't any right or wrong. There's just an opinion. But at the end of the day, if the IA believes something is not safe, he's not going to sign off the airplane as airworthy, and it is not reasonable to ask somebody 
to sign off something as airworthy that they don't believe is safe. So you never want to put yourself in, in that position. But you need to understand why he thinks it's not safe. And it's perfectly okay to challenge that. Uh, and it's perfectly, I mean, the other day we had a, a Cherokee that the, the IA was saying that the universal joint in the, in the, in the control yoke system was going to have to be changed because it had too much wiggle to it. So we went over to a couple other Cherokees and videoed, and they had just exactly the same amount of wiggle. And the guy said, well, okay, <laughs> I guess that's all right. So it's perfectly okay to, to challenge that. But at the end of the day, it's the IA's decision as to whether he believes it's airworthy or not. And if you cannot agree with him, then you have the option to agree to disagree. And if you agree to disagree, then you simply ask the IA to sign off your annual as unairworthy with a discrepancy list. And he will give you a logbook entry and give you a discrepancy list with one or more items on it of things that he feels are unairworthy. And then you can take your airplane to somebody else and ask them to look at those things and, and clear the discrepancies. And they may very well agree with you and say, yeah, that's not really a problem. And they can they can remove the discrepancy or they can say, yeah, you know, I sort of agree with the other guy. We really need to fix that. But at least you can you can get a second opinion. So you're 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 never in a situation where where the IA can hold you hostage. You always have the option of getting your airplane out of the shop by asking him to sign off the annual with a discrepancy or with a couple of discrepancies and then take the airplane somewhere else. And if the somewhere else isn't on the same field, you can. It's usually not very hard to get a ferry permit to, to if, if the discrepancy isn't a life-threatening one, um, to fly the airplane from wherever it is to some other shop on some other field where where, where the discrepancies can, can get addressed. And the, you never have to take it back to the first guy, and you never ha and you don't have to repeat the annual from scratch. You just have to address the the, the list of discrepancies, and it's it's. You know, it's actually fairly common that if you if if you have a, a discussion with your IA and you can't agree on something, and you say, "Look, we're we're just going to have to agree to disagree. Um, I'm going to ask you to sign off for the annual discrepancy." If his discrepancy is sufficiently unreasonable, he may very well be back off. I mean, a common case of that would be somebody who doesn't want to sign off an annual because the engine is 500 hours over TBO, and he wants you to overhaul the engine. You don't want to overhaul the engine. Well, there's there's probably no IA who's going to sign off an annual as unairworthy and document that the reason for the unairworthiness is that the engine is 500 hours over TBO because everybody knows that doesn't pass the laugh test. TBO is not a requirement. And so by saying, okay, if we can't agree on this, then just sign it off as discrepancy, the IA very very well may come back and say, well, okay, I'll sign it off this time, but uh, but but don't bring it back next year. And you're going to say, don't worry, I wasn't planning to. And that will be the end of that story. So the short answer is I, I encourage you to push, push back on the items, uh, do it in, in, a, in a civil and professional way. Don't try to put the guy in a corner because it, it's, you're just going to make an enemy that way and you're not going to get any place. But these things are absolutely reasonable things to discuss with your IA. And the very first question about uh, any discrepancy ought to be, is this unairworthy because it's non-compliance with type design or is this unairworthy because it's not in condition for safe operation? And if it's 
a matter of type design, then you ought to be able to get on the same page because you look at you look at whatever the the spec is and you measure whatever the thing is and either it passes the spec or it doesn't. The the ones that are dicey are have to do with condition for safe operation. The engine that's 500 hours over TBO is fully compliant with its type design. It's just that the the mechanic has got it in its head that going 500 hours over TBO is not safe and you believe it is and that's a perfectly reasonable thing to have a discussion about. You know, it's easy for Mike to say this because Mike has all this experience, but I know a lot of aircraft owners aren't really comfortable pushing back on their IA um, because they feel, well, what do I know? It just looks like a huge amount of digits on my bill that I don't want to pay. I remember in my first year of aircraft ownership, the mechanic told me that one of the cylinders on my four-cylinder Lycoming was out of out of spec with the others, it was too low, whereas the others were in line. The cylinder was like at 62 out of 80, but it was lower by some percentage than the average of the others. And therefore, since my engine was high time, we should overhaul it. And of course, we had just bought the airplane, so uh, the bill of overhauling was a real shock to us, but what did we know? So we ended up doing it. I would never do that now. Cylinders are disposable items and can be replaced. And that engine was probably perfectly fine, but you know it, it's very difficult because your AMP is in a position of authority. And so what you need to do is ask him to educate you, ask him to be patient with you and explain it in terms that you understand, so that you can make that decision with him and understand what he's uh, what he's pointing out. Ask him to prioritize the list too. Oh, that's awesome! Thanks so much for all the advice. Really appreciate it. You guys are awesome. Take care. Good to talk to you. See ya. Well, our next question comes from Tom, and I think it's about a Bonanza. What you got, Tom? Well, Mike, uh, you know, lots of talk about engine overhauls. And and what I'm discovering after a recent engine overhaul is there's lots and lots of lore out there about break-in procedures and when to do what. And and one of them is regarding engine oil uh, right after the engine overhaul. I've put mineral oil in mine at the recommendation of the shop, although that same shop had recommended to somebody else with the identical engine that, uh, well, they could use mineral oil if they want, but semi-synthetic, I think it's the Philips brand, uh, was one that they recommended. And and so that person chose to use semi-synthetic. And so what's the deal? Does it matter? And and how how should one know what kind of oil to use after an engine overhaul? (laughs) I love this. My take is, that you use whatever the person overhauled the engine recommends, and then you keep all of your engine data. So if there's ever a warranty question, you can say, I did it exactly like you said. Okay. Well, that, that seems like a fairly <laughs> logical response. Now, Mike will give you all the, all the chemical reasons why to do it. Yeah. In the real world, you're going to do it just like the engine overhauler right. says. But in this case, the engine overhaul told one customer with the identical engine one thing and told me something else. You know, not to the exclusion of the other, but just from a recommendation standpoint. Oh, you should use this and then tell me, you know, you should use that. And so it just seems weird that there wouldn't be like one standard answer for a question like that. Continental has one standard answer. So if you're uncertain, uh, Continental has a service built and it explains that. Uh, Otherwise, I would get the engine overhauler to give you something in writing. It's amazing what people will and won't say when you say, I need that in writing. Okay. Tom, I would 
be a little suspicious that any shop would recommend the use of semi-synthetic oil for break-in. And you mentioned a Phillips product, and Phillips doesn't make a semi-synthetic oil. Well, I, I could I could have the brand wrong, but um, but the, it, the only the only the only synthetic oil presently on the market or semi-synthetic is Aeroshell 15W50. Um, Exxon had a product called Elite, which they no longer sell, that was 25% synthetic. Uh, 15W50 is 50% synthetic. You definitely do not want to use synthetic oil for break-in. And the reason is it's too good. <laughs> uh, the normal function of lubricating oil is to separate the surfaces to prevent metal-to-metal -metal contact. During the break-in period, which is a very short period if you do it right, we need to breach that oil film and get metal-to-metal -metal contact because that's what breaking is all about. It's about rounding off the sharp edges on the of the home pattern on the cylinder. So you don't want an oil with a very high film strength, and that's why we don't want any synthetics. The other thing we don't want is we don't want any anti-scuff or anti-wear additives, which also will inhibit the break-in process. We want sort of a crappy oil in there, but we only want it in there for maybe 10 hours. The traditional oil that's used for break-in is, is straight mineral oil. However, some manufacturers recommend the use of, uh, of, of, an, of a petroleum-based ashless dispersant oil like Aerosil W100 or the Phillips uh, multi-grade 20W50, which is all petroleum with ashless dispersants to, to keep the engine clean. Um, I have never seen any evidence personally that indicates that mineral oil is is actually better for break-in than, than AD oil. The things that you don't want to have is you don't want to have synthetics because the film strength is too strong, and you don't want to have anti-scuff additives because we're, we're trying to scuff, basically. <laughs> And you only want that stuff in for a fairly short period of time, no more than about 10 hours, and then get rid of it. It's going to be full of metal anyway. So mm -hmm. you want to get rid of it. You want to get rid of the filter and then go to your normal operating oil. I think another point sometimes, and I hear this all the time, oh, you want to use mineral oil for break-in. And people assume that when they say mineral oil, they're also talking about non-detergent or non-ashless dispersant. And those are two very different things. Phillips 15W50 is, uh, or 20W50 XC, is a mineral oil, but is a, what we generally call a detergent oil. And yeah, you can- AD oil. Uh, AD oil, sure. Yeah. So those are not the same thing. Saying mineral oil is not the same thing as saying an oil that doesn't have the, the scuff protection and that sort of thing. So those are, those need to be isolated, I think. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, the, the, there's this terminology that's pretty common that, where people will talk about something like Aeroshell 100 that that doesn't that's a non-AD uh, mineral oil, and they'll call it straight mineral oil. I think that's right. a term that I've heard yeah. a lot. And straight somehow, I don't know why, <laughs> make it crooked, but uh, but but uh, that's sort of the traditional oil that's used for break-in. Uh, but as I said, I, I haven't seen any evidence that a, an AD oil that doesn't have any scuffs or, or synthetics is, is any worse, and it keeps the engine cleaner. So the, the oil that I would tend to use myself if I was breaking in would be 
would would be W100 rather than 100. But it, they're both going to work fine. It's it's just that the W100 keeps the engine a little cleaner, but you're not going to have it in for very long. So it's not that what? big a deal either way. Well, and one argument to not use mineral oil is you're always left over with this mineral oil that you can't use. So <laughs> yeah. why not well, go true. with W100, yeah. which is standard stuff? So, so Tom, did he did the shop explain why they gave one person one advice and you another advice? And then what did you actually do? I uh, I just changed the oil and put in W100. Was the but, other guy by any chance? Did he have a turbocharged aircraft? Because there uh, there are some I've seen some recommendations to use an ADOL for for breaking in turbocharged aircraft and a non ADOL for non turbocharged, and that doesn't make any sense to me. But I've seen it seen yeah. that recommendation. So no, in this case it was it was not a turbocharged airplane. Mm-hmm. And then the second part of his question was how long before it's broken in? I think he was asking that. Oh. And I mean, that depends on how you're operating it and how quickly it 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 will tell you when it's broken in. That when I've broken in two engines that I've overhauled, I've watched my temperatures, and you literally see it as a step function. Things start coming down, and the oil usage starts going down as the the clearances tighten. I guess if you're not operating at high power enough, you might glaze your cylinders, and it would be a long drawn out curve instead of that step function. But if you do the break-in routine properly and change the power settings and run it as high as you can at lower altitudes to get high pressure in the cylinder, you should see a pretty abrupt break-in. Right. And, and that assumes, of course, implicitly, Colleen, that that the aircraft is equipped with an engine monitor, which not all of them are. But New well, engine. You better have an engine monitor. All, all <laughs> engines should have Protect engine Protect your investments. If, if it is equipped with an engine monitor, then then the key thing you're looking for is that the, is for, for the cylinder head temperatures to normalize. And they should do so fairly obviously. And uh, the other confirming thing, uh, you know, as as uh, both Paul and Colleen were saying, is that oil consumption will stabilize at a, at a reasonable value. Mm-hmm. There's also there's also all kinds of guidance about what power settings you should use for break-in. I've seen like these very complicated algorithms where you're supposed to be cycling between 65 and 75 percent power every five minutes or something like that. But basically, if you go to first principles, what we're trying to do in break-in is 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 to breach the oil film and get the the rings to scrape the the the, the high points off of the uh, the cylinder hone and round round them or flatten them out. And so really the 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 optimum way to break in an engine assuming you have an engine monitor can actually see what's going on is to to run the engine at the highest power you possibly can without overtemping the cylinders. And and if that's full takeoff power then that's the best power to use. The, the, the more power, the better. And uh, we, we just don't want the cylinders to get too hot. And uh, by too hot, I would say for Continentals, we, we, we don't want to let them get above about 420 CHT during the break-in process. And for Lycoming's about 440. But just run, as, run the engine as hard as you can uh, within those limitations. And the break-in should happen within a couple of hours. And right. you'd be done. Yeah, and if you're lucky, get it down on the course on Reno and do some racing while you're breaking <laughs> right. it in. There you go. You would think that way, wouldn't you, Colleen? Breaking in is one of the most fun times to fly a plane because you're flying <laughs> low altitude, 
you know, throttle to the wall. And, uh, and it's exciting because something bad might happen. So it's got all the good elements of a fun flight. There you go. Uh, so and that tells you everything about Colleen that you need to know. <laughs> if it's not exciting, you're not flying. Is that what you're saying, Colleen? Something like that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Do I get a quick follow-up question? Absolutely. Sure. So, so now that I think my engine is broken in, seems to be doing great. When can I start flying lean of peak? Is immediately, or or is there another period there that maybe I should be running rich of peak? As soon as it's as soon yeah. as it's broken in, just run it the way you normally would, and hopefully the way you normally would would be lean of peak because it keeps be it happy. nice and clean. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's keep all the crud so off the keep all the crud off the pistons and the valves. Yeah. Again, if you if you do the break in right, it's going to be history at ten hours. It, it's not something that it's a prolonged process if it's done right. And if it's a prolonged process, then you screwed it up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. um, and, and the only exception to that that I, that I would throw in is if the cylinders are, are, are channel chrome cylinders, it'll take longer because right. those things break in quite slowly. Okay. And really with channel chrome cylinders, you're really breaking in the, the, the rings. You're not breaking in the cylinder because the cylinder is too hard to, to, yeah. to break in. Hard as okay. rocks. Good. All right. Thanks so much, guys, for all the info. It's really helpful. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. Okay, well, that's a wrap. We know a lot more about maintenance than podcasting, so we'd love to hear from you. Give us your ideas on what you want to hear. Send your questions and comments to podcasts at aopa.org. Fly safely and have fun, and we'll see you next time. See ya. Bye. <laughs>